0: Well, hello everybody and welcome back to the My Love of Golf podcast for another episode. This week I have a very special interview with a golf industry colleague. If you're a Ping person, this might be an interview that you want to listen to. If you've been in and around a demo day in Melbourne, you may have met Matt Austin. Matt has dedicated his career to golf, but also his career to representing the Ping brand here in Australia. A fitting guru, the Ping product specialist, uh, he is one of my go-to guys in the industry when I want to know something more about Ping. So this story is a little bit of Matt Austin's journey into the world of Ping I'm sure you'll enjoy listening. Jump over to the YouTube channel if you want to check out Matt and I having uh, a discussion face-to-face. I've recorded the interview and published it over at YouTube. I'd love to see you over there. If you do, drop over there. Let me know by leaving me a subscribe. I'm trying to get more video on there as we grow our video profile. And as I help Drum and Golf, who are supporting this episode, grow their YouTube profile, I'd love to see you over there at my YouTube channel. So it's my love of golf YouTube. Drop me a subscribe over there and uh, we will bring more videos. But for now enjoy catching up with Matt Austin. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Matt Austin from Ping, Australia. Welcome to the Mile of Golf podcast. How are you, Matt? Uh, Thanks, Roscoe. Thanks for having me. Yeah, going well so far, I must say. And it's great for you to be able to join me on the podcast. It's a a special time for me in the podcast. And I guess you're the first guest of the Mile of Golf uh, podcast that's being, I guess, brought to you with the support of uh, an organisation that's very important to you in your world but also very important to me. Uh, in Drum and Golf, so you know. Thanks to Drum and Golf, thanks to Ping, thanks to you for joining us on the podcast. I just thought we might take, you know, however long it takes to learn a little bit more about Matt Austin. I've known you for a number of years. I've probably known you for longer than I've been involved with uh, Drum and Golf in the golf industry because you know as one of these guys that uh, hanging out at driving ranges and demo days. You are always a familiar face there presenting ping product you have been doing that for a long time so i think it's going to be great for us to get to know you a little bit more you to tell us about your role with ping and a little bit about the background of of how you come into this great role that you obviously very passionate about uh, and the journey of matt austin golfer ping extraordinaire guru um so let's go let's wind it right back to the start how did how did matt austin you know get into the game of golf where did it all start you know you're not just a more than a frankston boy here mate (laughs)
1: <laughs> Go easy on the Frankston, but yes, that's right. I am now in Frankston South, so I won't argue with that. Um, my ping journey started a long time ago. Um, I got into golf uh, like a lot of my friends did in that 1986 era when Norman led all four majors and obviously only won one of them, but uh, uh, that was where the love of golf, I think, started. My dad hadn't played golf for about 20 years until that time. And uh, he and I sort of started that journey again together, which was fantastic. From a ping perspective, um, Paul Rosa, who who runs American Golf here in Australia, is the distributor, uh, looked after me with my first set of clubs when I was 11. Uh, So that's getting into, what are we, early, mid-80s, mid to late 80s. Uh, And I've used ping golf clubs ever since. So that's 32 years uh, I've been involved with the company uh, in that regard. So
0: let's let's just rewind that. So when you were eleven, where, where did you grow up? Where was where was home originally?
1: Yeah, Mount Eliza. So Mount um, Eliza, yeah, see. yeah, only a uh, stone's throw really from where I am these days living. Um, yeah. Started my golf at Mornington Golf Club as an eight year old or thereabouts, and then gradually progressed to I was a member at Long Island from the age of eleven. I think the old man lied on my age actually. I think he was supposed to be twelve, and I reckon he might have uh, used a little bit of political license there.
0: You probably assumed that I knew that about your. Uh, Journey of starting at Mornington. I maybe I did not know it, but I forgot about it because you know that Mornington Golf Club is a very very special place to me. It's where I reconnected with the world of golf after you know basically giving the game away as a junior. And Mornington was the place where I rejoined and rediscovered my love of golf. Mm. Um, I didn't know that you're a, a Mornington boy. I knew you have down the Peninsula I didn't know that you're a Mount Eliza boy, as as I am. So yeah, uh, we should we should move in together. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, interesting. So how did How did the connection with Paul, obviously done a wonderful job representing Ping here in Australia with American Golf Imports and Supplies, how did that connection come about as an 11-year-old into Ping? How did that sort of happen?
1: It was really just a phone call. I think um, Ping was at its its peak, I guess, in those days from an I2 perspective. Um, My dad always had this dream of owning a set of Ping golf clubs Uh, He went to Hawaii, I think, the year before, two years before maybe, and got himself a set. And then as I was getting into it, again, long story short, from a a Drummond perspective, I think I went into maybe Drummond Frankston in those days, and we were looking, and Dad made a phone call to, in those days, American Golf. Paul answered the phone, um, did a fitting over the phone, basically, for what uh, a tall, lanky 11-year-old kid could use, which in those days was black dot. I, uh, zing twos that was my first set was zing two uh, sorry zings steel shaft because that was pretty much all there was uh and then it just progressed on from there and i gradually worked my way through from zing to zing two to isi and right through to now the new models
0: that's amazing uh you mentioned zing and you know i'm just getting flashbacks of, of memories of uh my, my reintroduction to golf and it's, this is about you not about me but you know, that time when i came back to mornington i, I didn't have a set of clubs are uh, they Unfortunately, been stolen. So you know, like a lot of people that that I uh, come across here, getting back into the game, they go searching for some secondhand sets of clubs and so on and so forth. And I distinctly remember buying a set of uh, Ping Zings online and getting my parents, who were driving down from the Hunter Valley, up where I originally came from, down to Mount Eliza to see me. I remember getting them to pick them up in Sydney on the way because I thought, here's a set of Ping Zings. So when I came back to the golf at Mornington, uh, whenever that was early 2000s, ping Zings, were, ping Zings were my choice of weapons. That was your yeah. And then I went to the I3s. I went to the I3s. So Ping ping for me has always had a very, very special place in my heart. Obviously now, you know, I've played, you know me, I change golf clubs a fair bit. Yeah. I have to because I want to. I need to be able to talk about and experience them all um, to do to do my job. But Ping's always had that special place, you know, like that. But I go back to, the, to 87 you know, in Palm Springs, in whatever the big golf chain um, stores are there over there in the States at that time, buying my first ever Ping answer putter. I now have several Ping answer putters and several mm. other Ping putters in a, in a pseudo collection. Uh, I don't have the original one anymore. Unfortunately, it got stolen with those clubs that I lost. But uh, it just goes back, for me, that connection goes all the way back to, to that story. So Ping Zing, there you go. I had a Ping ISI,
1: one iron. Yeah. So ISI is still, uh, still to this day, my favorite model. And again, it's when I was playing my best golf. So mid, mid to late nineties, a copper beryllium ISI set. Um, I don't know where they ended up. I've still got the staff bags. I've still got the 11 inch Burton leather bag from those days, but uh, yeah, the irons have gone, unfortunately, I don't know where.
0: Yeah. So ISI berylliums, what a, so sought after now, those
1: clubs. Yeah, it's one of those things now that, I, you know, everyone has these moments where if you think back to the things you got rid of cheaply that are now worth a lot of money and people want, that was yeah. that was certainly one of them.
0: Who was the, your mentor down there at Mornington when you, you know, were that
1: 11-year-old junior? Who was the in charge down there? Um, to be honest, it was probably Laurie Quinlan. So um, yeah. back in that day, so Quinny, Graham Quinlan was still a member there, Paul Wright, uh, a lot of guys who were still around, Greg Christensen uh, playing golf. Um, But yeah, um, Laurie certainly probably took me under his wing. I didn't have a lot of lessons down there in those days. I can't even remember. I started with croaks with Peter Croker. um, who was at Pat River in those days. But um, yeah, it was probably Laurie who really encouraged me along and got me to join in the groups. Um, I played junior pennant there as a 10-year-old. It was handicap pennant in those days, which used to be fun. But that was my real introduction to to pennant golf in particular, which I loved. Laurie Quinlan is one of those... You know members of a club that you
0: know i think every every club loves to have you know mm. he was just i remember playing a number of games of golf with Laurie. Uh, very passionate man very passionate tigers man mm. uh, i think he had the tigers golf bag graham i didn't i didn't know so well you know graham was i remember graham when i was sort of following along golf you know as one of the elite victorian golfers supremely talented i think he's floated between you know mornington and, and peninsula kingswood won multiple club championships at, at both so yeah, he would have spent a bit of time in and around Graham. is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. He was probably the year or two years older than me or thereabouts, super talented, super intelligent, uh, didn't take his golf as seriously as he probably should have. He could have been anything, mm-hmm. but he loved it and enjoyed it, uh, got to do it with his his brother and his dad and his whole family, so it was, in, was an important part of Mornington Golf Club.
0: So then, you know, when did you realise that golf was going to be a thing career-wise for you? What happened there?
1: Uh, that's a good question. So through my junior years, um, I progressed um, pretty well through the golf circles. Um, when I got towards the end of high school, I had to make that decision. Uh, I was a, a pretty good basketballer as well. Dad was never a big basketball fan, very much an American sport. You know, Aussie kids don't play basketball. So, look, I chose golf uh, as a, a sport to pursue uh, different decisions, different times. Uh, I should have gone to college earlier when I finished high school uh, at Padua college I chose not to chose to stay home and uh, work my way through towards tour school. So it was probably when I was about 16, 17, that I really focused on golf.
0: And, you know, playing tour school, how did the journey into professional golf What talk, talk us through that?
1: Yeah. So it's a real roundabout one. Um, I probably again made a decision back in those days, the the PGA traineeship was almost frowned upon as an elite amateur. You know, you're from elite amateur in those days. Again, Jeff Ogilvy and I are the same age. So you made the progression into the pro ranks and then you played and you retired and with lots of money. That was the plan. I, I made a decision to delay that a little bit and, and went to the US and played some events, uh, spent a little time at college. Missed tour school, unfortunately, the first year through injury. Um, and then the, the next year when I was setting up, I actually got injured again as well. So I actually never got my way through all of a, an Aussie tour school, um, unfortunately just through injury.
0: Yeah right And then so was there that sort of sliding doors moment where it was like well I'm not going to do I'm not going to do this professionally, but I still want to be involved in golf. So how did that then yeah. transition into this, yeah. this role now? So
1: from a playing perspective, I tell this story all the time. So one of my first events in the US, uh, was the Dogwood Invitational, so a fantastic event played in Atlanta. Um, went over there playing reasonably well, striking the ball as I usually did pretty well. I picked it up the first round, uh, struck the ball okay. I think I shot one or two under. I can't remember. And this kind of short, fat Swedish bloke beat me by ten, and it was Carl Peterson. All right, nice. Carl Peterson. If you've ever seen him, looks like he's swinging his golf club in a phone booth. It's not attractive. Uh, he skanked it along the ground part of the dots off it and beat me by, I think he had 62 that first round. And that was my little epiphany moment of uh, this is going to be a little bit harder than what I'd planned for it to be. And when I got home, I had the, the, I had this injury, unfortunately through basketball. And um, I remember going to see the great Ramsey McMaster and Ramsey tried to get me doing push-ups on a Swiss ball to, to rehab my shoulder and I said, uh, I don't think I want to do this anymore. And that was where I went back into fitting. Um, I went back into doing a, a pin roll, basically.
0: Yeah, right. So, Ramsay McMaster, you know, what a fine Scotsman he was. Uh, mm-hmm. I never got the opportunity to meet Ramsay, but, you know, anyone that you've come across at that elite golf level, especially in Victoria, has has been, you know, fettled by Ramsay in, in his world of what he did. And he only ever spoke very, very highly of, uh, of the great man that's uh, not with us anymore. So, Ping fitting. How did you know? How long, so, how long have you been working as a
1: for Ping? Yeah. So on and off. So that was uh, I was 19, 18 when I first started when uh, Lars Era had the uh, distributorship in Victoria back in those days uh, or mm-hmm. the agency. Um, and I started uh, I had my license basically and he said do you want to do some fitting days or demo days for me as they were in those days so I would load up the old van and, and drive that to where it needed to be uh, as well as when I was sort of working part-time at Long Island in those days so it was kind of a, a little bit of extra cash before I went over to the US. Lars looked after me really well and so did Paul through those days obviously. I was kind of considered part of the tour department in those days so my clubs would turn up with my name on them and I could get lots of flashy things So that was always attractive to me and I kind of went back and forth with that a little bit and until the time I eventually went back in, tried to play, did my apprenticeship or my PGA traineeship at Long Island, yep. um, which was obviously I was there for uh, seven or eight, maybe ten years in the shop, um, either with Cameron or Richard. Uh, and then I had an, uh, a moment where my second child was born and I was working seven days a week coaching in the shop and I just needed a change. I needed to be home more and be around. So that was, uh, just on, I think about 12 years ago now where I went full-time back into this fitting role. Yeah. Right. Jeez, I, I may
0: even remember you from Lars days, cause I definitely remember Lars, you know, I remember coming, coming across Lars because your ping van was the Mercedes. And, mm. you know, I used to see the ping van down at, uh, at Mercedes Benz in Brighton. And, uh, you know, anytime that I was visiting there because they were one of my, my dealers that I looked after when I was at Mercedes-Benz, I'd see the ping van and uh, I'd have a little pep in my step. And I think <laughs> I met Lars uh, back back then. He was a, he was a character. Is, yes. So let's talk about the role now then. You just built yourself a wonderful studio down there in Moorabbin, um, which is coming along beautifully. It'd be great if we could get open again and use it. Um, It'd be nice, yes. <laughs> it would be nice. But you do a fair bit of work uh, along with your colleagues in places like drum and golf, out there at the driving range doing fitting days. what What is the variety of work that you do do, um, you know, helping people you know, understand and discover ping a little bit more?
1: Yeah, it, it's extremely fluid and it has been forever. My roles probably changed 15 or 20 different times, different titles, um, different uh, tasks that I carry out week in, week out. Uh, at the moment, we've actually had a little restructure where Uh, We've had uh, Todd Hutchison join us uh, from New South Wales, as he, along with Ollie Webb, will be doing a lot more out in the field. Uh, My focus will be fitting in the Ping Fitting Studio in Morabid, as you mentioned. Uh, I'll still do some external fitting dates. I still go to uh, interstate, uh, South Australia, Tassie, up into New South Wales. Um, when there's tour events in Australia, we'll definitely get to those events and help our staff players. Um, and then occasionally if I need to, um, I'll fly to the U S or somewhere else if, uh, if I'm required. So it's still, uh, it's more of a, just a fitting role these days where it's been a few different things over the years. If we can just sort of unpack that fly to the U S
0: is, is that the, you know, every ping players dream to, to get a, a look behind the curtain at, uh, ping HQ, Yeah,
1: exactly so traditionally yes i would say most guys um really look forward to those trips uh i hate flying one of the reasons i stopped playing was i don't like not that i'm scared of it i just don't like the travel time much so uh, unfortunately if you're only flying to phoenix for three or four days and then flying home it's hard to get excited for that sometimes but when you're there um it is fantastic to be able to uh go through the factory uh, spend some time, especially for me in VIP or the tour fitting department, uh, work with tour players. Um, my last trip was Phoenix open, which is a, an event all in itself, you know, with the, the big 16 hole and all those things. So um, it is a wonderful uh, place to visit. Um, I'm always there in summer. Uh, so it's, well, I'm thinking Fahrenheit now, but it's 43 degrees every day in Phoenix in the middle of summer. It's not the nicest place to be, but it's still a really exciting place to visit to get into the vault, to get onto the tour t uh, spend time with tour players is, is exciting.
0: Now, hopefully we make uh, this little Zoom video catch up into, a, into an actual video and we can pop that on YouTube and that sort of thing. But you know, you talk about the vault there and I think everyone who's you know, checked out ping at some level has seen the pictures of the vault. You're using it as your background yep. just there now. Okay, so I remember you know, equate my previous world to, so, you know, being in, in the Mercedes world. I remember, you know, seeing a little bit behind the scenes. And I remember how I felt when I first saw uh you know the Mercedes Barn where they keep all these old cars that aren't even in the museum. I saw that open and, you know, the, there's a Pope Mobile in there, for example. You know, and like wow. go and have a go and have a look. Guys, I remember how that made me feel because I was very passionate about that brand, you know, and a dedicated much like yourself 12 years to my life before you know deciding that I really I really am a golf person. I always was a golf person. Mm. What was it like for you going into the ping vault for the first time?
1: So the the really exciting part for me is if you you know the image doesn't really show it. So as you walk straight into the vault, the very back wall is where a lot of putters are housed that are number one quite old and a lot of them aren't necessarily staff players. So you walk in there and you can see Sevi. So Sevi's got two rows or two shelves, as you see behind there, of gold putters, some yeah. of them being obviously um, gold-plated and some of them being solid gold As for majors. The, they're the ones that kind of excited you more. So Nicholas is, is alongside his as well. Tiger's a little on the side as you walk into the right there. Um, I, I would spot out the Aussies, but it was more going through that nostalgic part of, especially, as I say, the, the Tom Watsons, the Normans, the Sevis, the Nicholas, the names you don't necessarily equate with Ping, being ping putter users for the better part of two to three decades. Uh, that was the really exciting part. And you do get a few of those little moments of, you know, this is really holding a piece of history. Do you know who's got the most gold putters in the vault? Is there someone pretty, that stands out? I'm pretty sure it's either Westy or Miguel um, yeah. uh, from from memory. Uh, West. The, the image behind me on my screen there are Westie's gold putters lined up, but it's probably about six or seven years old. So he's added three or four in the last few years. But c- certainly, it's one of those guys who's been uh, one of our long-serving tour players.
0: So all of those guys, all those putters behind you in that picture are around the bag, right? Leaning on the bag there. Yeah, they're, they're I'd all have West to double check. Putters. Yeah, I'd have to
1: double check my history, but um, I'm pretty sure he'd certainly be up there.
0: I think I think there was a program that uh, radar. Uh, Wayne Riley did, and he had a lot of the Ping staffers, obviously, you know, Ping was heavily involved and had the Ping staffers playing over there in the UK. And he did, he did a great one with Westy. I, I love listening to Westy because he's just dry, he's funny, great sense of humour. You can have a laugh with him. He'll certainly have a laugh uh, with you and at you if um, required. But he did mention there, I think he said he had the most putters
1: Yeah,
0: uh, out of anyone. But, I know uh, it was
1: mid-30s in those days. I think it was 34 or 35, so it might be close to 40 now.
0: So Ping, just talk about Ping for a sec. They, they seem to be a brand that does keep contracted players for a long time.
1: Yeah, yeah. so the, they, they build brand loyalty. All right? So the, the yeah. big part of it, um, and again, in, in Australia, it doesn't carry as much weight, but in the US and the UK to a certain degree, the Solheim name still means a lot when you talk about golf. Um, so most of our players now um, have dealt with John Solheim, who's Carsten's oldest son, for 20 or 30 years, depending on how old they are. Uh, for some guys like a, a Westie, he was uh, early teens when he started with Ping and he's nearly 50. Not that he'll admit it, but it's getting close to it. So a lot of that just comes from loyalty uh, to the family. Um, a lot of our agreements uh, have always been handshake agreements. You know, there's not a lot of contracts that were signed back in the old days. It's changed a bit now, but uh, John looked after players. There's lots of great stories of John looking after Bubba Watson when he was on the mini tours and trying to promote Bubba and look after him in some... Uh, entry fees and those things um, which John never took any payment back for but since then Bubba Watson's been a ping player and he doesn't go chasing money or look for anything extra they're just loyal to the family
0: well I think Bubba's come out now and said he's pinged for life right
1: yeah uh, I th- yeah
0: I think he said he's, he's somewhere along the line a while ago he's, he's pinged for life
1: only recently exactly right he did actually yeah. sign a contract and there was a good story Um, when Bubba won that first Masters, his contract renewal was actually up and um, he could have asked for any sort of dollars. Uh, All he said was, I want $1 more than Westwood. I want to be the highest paid Ping player on the roster. And that was all he asked for. He didn't ask for the, the millions that he was probably deserving and all the marketing that we did behind it. He just wanted to be that poster boy for Ping.
0: Look, I'm going to assume that it was part of, you know, that work that he does with Ping was one of the reasons why he was at the Solheim Cup. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think generally it was very, very well received that Bubba took the time to go down there and support the USA women's team at the Solheim Cup. Unfortunately, it didn't go their way as we know now. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, for for someone of his standing and, and station to be able to go down there and support those guys, I thought it was fantastic. Whether it's a marketing move or whether he just wanted to go down there, I'm going to, based on, you know, the way he just described Bubba, I'm going to assume that it's as much of his... Um, volition as, as it was that anyone else's uh, but it was a great move to see him down there with the with the women's golf so important um what how, how much value does you know the solheim family place on things like the solheim cup you know i i i just watched it on the weekend as we all did i thought it was fantastic i loved watching you know the the women's uh game under under pressure the you know that sort of match play format a great course, you know, Inverness, wonderful course. I went to the Solheim Cup in uh, Glen Eagles in 2019 for a day. Yeah. One of my, my all-time great golf experiences. And how much does it mean to the Solheim family to be involved with that?
1: Yeah, I, I think um, to, to John in particular, John, who's our, our CEO now um, and Carsten's son, it uh, means the world. So uh, really, it was Louise, so it was as Carsten's wife who who really promoted that event and said, well. Why is there not a ladies' event, the same as the Men's Ryder Cup? Um, Carsten and Louise really put a lot of time and effort into marketing that. Uh, I don't know all the dollars and cents, but I know they do do a lot of the marketing themselves. Not necessarily any any other sponsorship dollars or anything are involved with that. But they've always been a family to give back to golf. Uh, You know, golf's obviously been fantastic to the Solheim family, but... Uh, In America, uh, they have a a huge junior foundation. Uh, The UK, they have a similar foundation as well, and they really work that grassroots all the way through. So uh, I know John was was definitely at the event all week. uh, He was in a lot of photo ops, photo-bombed a few. I saw a few selfies that he managed to jump his way into. Um, And and then obviously Bubba Bubba there as well. And and Bubba is a genuine a person uh, that you could ever meet. Um, He'll admit himself, he's shy and he's a little bit strange sometimes, but... um, he definitely does all those things from the heart, you know, the pink driver, all those things uh, definitely is just Bubba to a T definitely.
0: Have you had the occasion to uh, spend any time in Bubba's company?
1: I had, I've had. i had a few times. Well, one meeting was that last time when I was in Phoenix at the Phoenix open. Um, that was that period where he was using the pink velvet golf ball. Uh, he was wearing pink shoes I think, and everything. He walked into the tour truck and I just happened to be in there at that time and he, he brought in, and I tell this story a lot because I've got a set of his clubs in the studio, but he brought in his lob wedge and he kind of handed it to us and said, all oh, right, I need this three quarters of a degree flatter. It's kind of getting stuck in the rough a bit and closing down, you need to change it. And I looked at it and put it down and because the grip's on sideways and it's a baseball bat, I just gave it back. I said, I'm not even touching it. I'm not even gonna look at it. Um, Spencer took it out of my hands. Who's one of the tour guys, put it in the vice, put it in the vice, gave it two little taps. Gave it back to Bubba. I don't know if he moved it at all, but Bubba <laughs> liked it and Bubba walked out. So yeah. it was really just making sure that Bubba was happy. I looked at it and said, oh, I'm not touching it. I don't even know how to measure that thing. Uh, but Spencer knew exactly how to handle that situation and uh, and Bubba walked out. I think he played pretty well that week too. It's an interesting point. And,
0: you know, I want to talk about, you know, your role in ping fitting. I've got to, here's one I prepared earlier. Oh, there you go. There you go. That's uh, the new Beautiful. i59. So we're going to spend some time talking about that uh, very soon. Excellent. Now, as long as anyone that knows ping knows that they have, you know, the ping fit system, uh, you know, the, the black dot, the different dot coloration system. Can you simply, for the people listening, explain how that works and yeah. how it's um, how it came about? It's been it's been around part of it for pretty much ever.
1: Yeah. So uh, custom brought custom fitting to the market. Uh, so there wasn't any custom fitting in golf at all. Uh, He brought that to market in 1972. And that was with the first color chart, as you mentioned. So um, the simplest way to explain it is rather than telling a golfer they had a a set degree lie angle, he would equate a color code to it. So it was much simpler for the golfer or the consumer to understand straight away. They were able to equate I'm a black dot or blue dot or a red dot, whatever the case may be. And fairly simply, he took height and wrist to floor which established a starting point for colour code because he understood straight away that Carsten wasn't a very tall man. And as soon as he gave his golf clubs to anyone who was taller, straight away they were too short. He realised he needed to make them longer. As you make a golf club longer, it affects the way it sits on the ground. Therefore, you needed to adjust the club to get the correct uh, interaction with the turf. So that's kind of where it came about. So I tell this story again a lot. I'm six foot five, but I've got arms like a Gorilla. Now that, that misses a lot of younger kids these days, that terminology, but I've got really, really long arms and I use standard length irons, even though I'm six five. Whereas Matt Kuchar, who's got little short arms like a Tyrannosaurus Rex, he uses two and a quarter inches over at the same height as me and swings the club quite differently. So that's kind of where it came about for Carsten. And then that's been expanded over the years, obviously, and, and adjusted as it needed to be.
0: So then, you know, when you when you think about all of the fittings that you've done, you know, is there anyone that you couldn't fit? Is there anything that just didn't fit into the the realm of you know what we can build these days in golf clubs? Is there something that stands out?
1: Yeah, definitely. The, story? the super long ones are the challenges. So I've had a number of uh, either NBA or NBL basketballers in particular who are upwards of six foot ten uh, with proportionate arms. So meaning they've got arms that kind of match up to the rest of their body. And if we've got to go sort of three to four inches over standard length, we can build it, but obviously it weighs a ton. That that becomes the big challenge. The shaft no longer works the way it should. They're the ones that are often you look at and just try and get as close as you can to get the golf club to work best for those guys. Um, Other challenges, really, the only other challenge will ever come from uh, a golfer's expectations. So if they come in with an expectation that they're either going to hit the ball 30 yards further or straighter or higher or something, and it's just not achievable with either their golf swing or their build, then that's obviously a challenge sometimes as well as trying to manage those things but that's not uncommon.
0: Yeah, no, as you know, I've, I, I don't know how many, I should try and work it out how many pub fittings that I've conducted here in, you know, the seven or eight years been, uh, have been doing this it has to be nearly a thousand. I don't know how many fittings if you keep a record, but I think that is certainly one thing that can, I, I guess, get in the way, maybe not the right term, but it's certainly a hard thing to overcome. You know, and when someone comes in and says, you know, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, and I'm this, but you know, you, you, you know, because you know, I get training from guys like you, I get training from everyone that's in your role. You know, we all get trained on that and, and being reasonably good golfers ourselves, you know, you do learn how to fit and you learn how the product works. You learn where this shaft bends and how its profile affects ball flight. But yeah, sometimes just getting past those little expectations that people come in, um, yeah, pre exactly. predetermined. Uh, yeah, make it make it a little bit harder. But you know, there's never, there's all you know. The beautiful thing about a lot of the golf clubs, but certainly you know your brand, there's so many opportunities to do. A, provide you know a perfectly fit set of clubs. Maybe yeah. perfect. Maybe perfection isn't maybe never achieved. I, I don't know. Opti- optimized
1: right. is the term, right? Op- yeah. Optimized. Optimized. Thank you. Optimized.
0: Is, yeah, see? optimized. Yeah. But yeah, you've got so many options there to, to optimize, you know, the best possible fit to give the player the best, op- best possible opportunity to play their best golf. And I guess that's what we're looking for when we're doing, you know, when someone's investing in a set of golf clubs, that's what you're trying to do, right?
1: Yeah. Spot on. Yeah. We're, we're looking for them to uh, And our, our uh, catchphrase is play your best. We're looking to make sure that golfer can enjoy their golf to the best of their abilities um, and we hope that equipment does help that doesn't fix everything as we know doesn't cure all ills but uh, it definitely helps the golfer play better
0: let's not get too bogged down in the fitting because this is more of a, of a get to know you but you know we should do that at some stage we should maybe come down to the ping studio and have a look down there or maybe you come in here and we can we can go through a fitting here and maybe record that and and, yeah, of and give everyone that insight into you know what happens when you come into a place like a golf and you go through the MyMatch process and then we end up you know using all of your ping fit gear you know we've got this you know pretty much this is exactly the same kit that you use in the ping studio it yeah we've got it is exactly right i've
1: just got a few more bits and pieces but uh it's yep. the same concept completely
0: yep so we might we might do that uh one day what else matt well what else can you give us in the world of matt austin ping superstar
1: Um, Look, there's probably not much more to it these days. Um, uh, I'm enjoying, you know, I don't say this a lot. COVID has not been terrible to me. I've been able to stay home and not travel for basically the last two years, uh, which I'm not upset about hugely. Um, So it's nice to be home. It's nice to have a base. Obviously, with the studio, as you mentioned, we've got a million-dollar facility there that uh, we can take people through the simulators, uh, through putter fittings, um, us being a American golf, having echo as a distributorship as well with footwear. Uh, we've got all of those things presented along with the bags, etc. So, um, these days apparel. it's really an apparel. Yeah, of course. Right, yeah. Um, these days it's really from our perspective is making sure that we've got, um, fitting the right golfers for the right reason to the right golf club, making sure we're getting those performances that we're after. Um, The nice part about a lot of the equipment now is adjustability. So having that ability to get any golfer in and being able to move a lot of things around on the golf club, change the shafts, et cetera, um, is a really nice way for us to do it. Whereas there used to be a lot of guesswork involved. So I guess I enjoy that. Um, I tell it to end up being a joke, actually. I hated physics at high school. I really hated it. Uh, part of it was my teacher. Won't talk about her, but anyway, she uh, she didn't uh, mean that I enjoyed physics. But I I kind of now love TrackMan. I love to look at the data on TrackMan, um, understand exactly what the golf ball's doing, how it's working, what forces are causing it to do that. They're the things that I'm I'm now being more interested in because it can actually make a difference to how golfers can play.
0: Yeah, well. Takes the guesswork out, right? You know, so yeah. if someone does does think about, like we were talking about before, you know, pre, uh, with a predisposed concept of of what's right for them, the data doesn't lie. That's it. You know, and we know that with data driven fitting processes, that you know you can show someone a set of metrics or a set of you know information that basically proves that the ball will go straighter, further, higher, or whatever the relevant characteristic that they need. We can actually show them that by using, you know, great technology and data, Um, much like this simulator that you see
1: me standing in. Yeah, exactly right. I think now, and this is the beauty of of your environment now, is that golfers are much more comfortable being fit indoors. You know, again, my Mm -hmm. my world now is fitting indoors more than outdoors uh, because the data is so accurate, uh, because the software and the feedback from the software is a lot clearer and a lot more user-friendly um more golfers are much more comfortable being fit indoors and they should be because the data is much easier to capture
0: now talking about fitting we should talk about some of the products that are about to uh, that are currently on the market the current lineup maybe or but you know a couple of the key products that you just launched because as i said you're the uh, you're one of the first Matt, you know in this uh, drum and golf series that's uh, called the, the My Love of golf uh, podcast that is supported by drum and golf but i am I've uh, been given the opportunity to make some video for drum and golf. Mm-hmm. Great. So we're gonna we're gonna jump across in a minute and you know do a little bit of a deep dive into the new I-59. But what talk talk to us about the current range? You know, what's what's hot in the
1: in the family at the moment? Um, so it kind of comes back in a full circle a little bit for us. So Carsten obviously started ping as a putter company back in the 50s, so 1959 bought in the answer putter or the 1A and then the answer, and then that flowed through into irons, et cetera. Um, the most sought after club, I think, at the moment is driver. Um, Ping have been uh, very popular from a driver perspective in producing a golf club that's extremely forgiving as well as giving the golfer ball speed. Um, So if we look at a tour perspective, uh, last week at the tour championship from time of recording now, uh, we had the number one driver in play as well as the number one iron, um, which is exciting from our perspective. So G425 driver, uh, the LS Tech at the tour player in particular, the lower spinning heads, hugely popular. Uh, For the average golfer, we have that uh, max or the SF Tech, so we're able to straighten out ball flight as well. In the irons, we still, predominantly from a consumer perspective, probably fit a lot of G425. Again, what the engineers are able to do now is build a golf club that looks more palatable. So it doesn't look like a ping did traditionally back in the Zing days we were talking about, but it performs a lot more like what they're used to. All right, So that's where we're starting to get improvements in overall performance. Um, Sometimes it's distance. From a ping perspective, that's not our be-all and end-all. We work more on consistency, strokes gained, um, distance to target, those sort of things, not necessarily just ball speed. And then we've just introduced, obviously, a new putter range in the 2021 putters, which are are based on our PLD range, which a lot of our tour players use. And they've been really, really popular uh, on tour uh, as well as consumer as well. So that's been very exciting. And then the introduction of the couple of models we're going to talk about, obviously, in the i-59, um, which is a better player's golf club, aimed at the tour player or the better player, and a Glide Forge Pro Wedge, which uh, initially have had some fantastic take-up on tour. It's an exciting
0: time. Uh, Ping, they are always evolving the product. You know Their technology and the focus that they put on technology uh, is, I guess, tell me if I'm wrong, you know, I always like to align to help people understand you know, a, a brand. And I very much always drew Ping back to my time at Mercedes Benz. You know, very much technology driven. You know, they were very safety oriented. You know, they they, they put the customer at the heart of you know the, their needs and built products for that. And I just definitely see some alignments to to that type of way of thinking about the engineering and how it has to be the best technically in in the in the Ping brand and. I don't know if that's, that resonates with you, but... Uh... Yeah,
1: and engineering is obviously it. So we're, we're a family of engineers. So uh, John, yeah. John Carsten was an engineer. So going back in history again, Carsten designed the first rabbit ears for television when he worked at General Electric and he designed the first jet propulsion engines for aircraft. So he was a fantastic engineer who was a terrible golfer who made golf clubs, that suited him better and started to make that down that path. Uh, and that still carries on. So we now have a, a family of engineers that still run the company. Ping is only a portion of Carston Manufacturing. So we still do engineering for, for other uh, automotive industries and all sorts of different things. So we are involved in other factors. But engineering is where we Uh, level up basically with mercedes so we kind of do see that correlation as well
0: yeah okay all right that's that's just me that was mine i've got other brands and other alignments for other luxury cars i I certainly have uh and i can articulate those
1: to those guys as well given the opportunity something that matches uh, up with your bugatti parked out the front there
0: yeah exactly right Uh, (laughs) i don't actually i don't actually have an alignment for a nissan navara uh no i don't but but certainly i can see you know, I was, I was driving cars for a long time for, for a living. So, you know, I, de- I definitely see, you know, alignments to, you know, the Audis and the, and the, mm-hmm. uh, the Lexuses and the, the other brands and so on and so forth, BMW very much so. But anyway, that's for another story. Matt, it's been great to catch up with you. I hope uh, the listeners of the podcast enjoy getting to know you a little bit more. Yeah, you are a very, very big figure in the Ping brand here in Australia. If you're in Victoria and you are a Ping person, you've probably met Matt along the way and uh, this is for anyone else around the world that wants to know a little bit more about Matt Austin, his life in PING, as very much has been a, a, a life. Uh, it has been a life, yes. As, as, as we've just articulated. And, um, yeah, it's been great to catch up, Matt. I look forward Thanks to very chatting much with for having you. Me. Mate, I look forward to chatting with you more often uh, in this capacity and certainly looking forward to catching up with you about the i59. Awesome. Thanks, Ross. No worries, mate. Thanks you. Cheers.